Well, somebody want to open us in prayer and we can dive into Mark chapter 2? I'll open us in prayer. All right. Father, thank you for this day and all that you will have in it. I pray that we're mindful of you throughout, that every thought is captive to you, every action is uh, done in obedience to you. Lord, we're not uh, worthy of the least of your mercies, yet you bestowed it upon us. We thank you for Christ. Um, and who we have uh, for admission of sins and forgiveness. Um, I pray that we operate from that. I pray that as we open up Mark and look at it, we see Jesus' work and obedience on this planet, and that we're using him as our example, and um, that we love you by being obedient to him. Thank you. For all things, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. Somebody want to read verses 1 through... 12 for us. I'll do it. All right. <laughs> 1 through 12. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was, I'm sorry, so many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the message to them. And they came to him bringing a paralytic, carried by four men. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above where he was. And when they had broken through, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, God understood in his spirit, or Jesus understood in his spirit, that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your mat and walk. But so you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat and go home. Immediately he got up, picked up the mat and went out in front of him everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Yeah, pretty crazy scene. Maybe one that you've read dozens of times before, so it doesn't really feel astounding anymore, but if you had been there, you would have been blown away. I've been on a Bible dad joke kick, so did you hear about the faith of the paralytic's friends? It was through the roof. Get it? Okay, all right, sorry. Um, thanks, Rick, for reading that. Picking up in verse 1, whose, whose home are they in? What did your version say again? Will you read verse 1 again, Rick? Sure. Because you have... I my coffee all over my Oh, no. Pressing. Oh, no. Um, do you need a napkin? One? Yeah, I do. What's um? What did you ask? Uh, if you would just read verse 1 again. Thank you. I call those love stains, man, yeah. in my Bible. Just coffee and... When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Right, he was at home. That, that sounds like he's at his own home. But he's not at his home, right? Because where is Jesus from? Not in Nazareth. Nazareth, right? So whose home is he at? Maybe another disciple. 
Yeah, I think this is probably the home of Peter. We already sort of encountered that, right, back in um, chapter one. Mother-in-law. Um, what's that? Peter's mother-in-law. Yeah, it would have been Peter's home, and Peter's mother-in-law seems to be living with them. Um, let's see if I can find that real quick. Um, Yeah, it's, it's like, and immediately he left the synagogue, sorry, verse 29 of chapter 1, and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. But if you go back to verse 21, it says, and they went into Capernaum. So I, I think that what you have here is that Jesus is using Peter's house as a sort of home base in the, in the city of Capernaum, kind of in this region. Um... And church history tells us that actually Peter's home really became the first church building, if you will, um, kind of the first gathering place outside of the temple that was kind of like the first official church. So, okay, the preaching ministry of Jesus is interesting, I think. Here uh, he is drawing the crowds. Verse 2 tells us, Many were gathered so that there was no more room, not even at the door. This is so... The place is so cram-packed that they have to cut open the roof and bring this guy in through the roof, right? Um, and I think everybody has, not everybody, I think there is often this view of Jesus that he was a very winsome communicator and that the crowds were always following him. And that is predominantly true, but that's not always true. Let's turn to John chapter 6, because I think this is worth looking at. We, we um, yeah, I guess maybe we'll pick up in verse 52 to get a bit of the context here. So John chapter 6, starting in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Fair enough. Jesus is teaching them, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, that's the only way you can have eternal life. He's equating himself with the manna from heaven. So how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Again, this is familiar stuff to us and we understand what it means, but you can imagine like a non-believer who's never opened the Bible, flips open the Bible and starts reading this. What in the world is this weird like vampire Jesus picture that we're getting here, right? Super weird. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 
And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. <laughs> Sorry, real quick. Dad joke? No, no. <laughs> I just noticed that there are many people who would look at verse 65 and they would say what they say in verse 60. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Right? There are many who are in the church who are like, yeah, I got no problem with drinking blood and eating flesh. But when you talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation, that's tough. Um, Jesus said some really whacked out hard things. And they're true things. Um, you know, they're just tough for us as people to, to swallow. I mean... Even verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Why would that be offensive? Well, because then you actually see Jesus for who he is. King of kings, Lord of lords, he's God, you're not. Um, to the self-centered, narcissistic human heart, that is an offensive thing to acknowledge. All right, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Um, I came out of... A, a pastoral ministry context that essentially said when the spirit of God is moving among the people of God it always produces these church growth movements um, that was always a little bit fishy to me but I, I more or less bought it I thought that if you were proclaiming the kingdom of God that people would come in droves to hear it and be part of it and uh and yet I looked around and I was like, but that, that's not always the case. Like there's lots of churches that are very faithful in preaching the word and people are offended by that. And I remember coming across this passage. I don't know. I'm sure I'd read it before, but it, it left an impression on me probably when I was like 23 that um, proclaiming the gospel often turns people away. What do you guys think about that? What do you think about the contrast between these two scenes? Any, do any thoughts come to mind? In one, you got this packed house. Nobody can even get in. Everybody wants to hear what Jesus is saying. In another one, Jesus gives a more lengthy teaching on what it means to participate in his body and blood. And people are like, I'm out of here. I think people in general maybe are um, drawn by... Maybe the miracles or what he's able to provide. Yet, when he talks about the spiritual things, like the spiritual things, people either don't really don't understand or it's hard and they're like, bye. Yeah. It is hard and people don't understand. I mean, Jesus even says that. Uh,. Verse 65, I think, in some ways. This is why I told you that no one could come to the Father unless it's granted him by the Father. I mean, you're not going to believe this stuff unless the Spirit gives you faith to believe. Well, here's something scary. Judas was one of those 
that would fall into verse 65. And then he wasn't. Hmm. Yeah, but the, the previous verse tempers that a little bit. There are some of you who do not believe, right? Judas, I think, falls into this category of people that, like, as long as there's buzz and excitement going on, I want to be close to it, right? We are drawn to kind of the, the, the most exciting new thing. But then when it comes to, like, an actual commitment to that thing, um, we tend to sort of back down. Um, because I think, I think the parentheses that John puts in here, well... The translator puts in here, but I think it is an aside in verse 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So I don't know, Judas kind of falls in this weird category where like... called, and I think that's what we were focusing on. Got it. No one comes upon us to call by, by God and Jesus, Judas was called. Was called to follow Christ. Yeah. But he wasn't called to stay. Yeah. Which still goes to your sovereignty thing, but um, I don't know, it's just fascinating. It is. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating, right? Um, one of the one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis is he says, "Reality is iconoclastic," um, and what he means by that is ultimately this. I, I believe it's in um, Grief Observed where he says that. I'm almost positive. Reality is iconoclastic. So God is reality. The iconoclasts were uh, a period in church history where. These were people who were destroying icons, destroying idols in the church. They thought it was idolatry to have an icon and to pray to God through an icon. And so they came in and they destroyed all these idols. So God is the great iconoclast. Reality is iconoclastic. And again, what he's saying is uh, we, we can't help but take God and formulate him into sort of an image that is comprehensible, comfortable, acceptable to us. But God is constantly in this process of being like, you think you think that's who I am, but I'm going to blow it up. And then we take the pieces and we kind of piece them back together to something maybe a little bit bigger that kind of fits the new information. And then God shatters it again. And so we're in this process of constantly having our understanding of who God is expanded as we meet him in reality. Does that kind of make sense? The way I kind of summarize these two different pictures is that people love Jesus as Savior, but they don't love Jesus as Lord. Right? Most people understand, my life is kind of a mess. I would love some outside help. Self-help books are one of the, the fastest selling book um, categories. And so people recognize that they need some outside help. And they love to get the help, but they don't want to submit themselves to that which will enduringly help them. They like Jesus as Savior, but not necessarily Jesus as Lord. So this is, I don't know, this is just a weird tension with the gospel. It will save and it will draw people, people will be attracted to it, and yet it's also going to repulse and offend and send many people away. Um, and we are not responsible for that outcome. I think that's really important. As we proclaim the gospel to an unbelieving world, we are not responsible for how people respond to it. Thank God for that. So it says here, any other thoughts on that? Okay. 
Um, I think there's a, another really kind of interesting thing here at the end of verse 2. It says, and he was preaching the word to them. What did Jesus preach? The gospel. And that is the Greek word logos there. Um, well, what's the gospel? I'm afraid to answer that. I got rebuked the other day. Did you? I was at a CR with my parents and some guy was telling me, what is the gospel? And I said, well, how long do I have? And then, you know, I didn't. And I basically gave him a short, you know, about Christ dying and how it wasn't supposed to. And, and he goes, no, it's wrong. He's like, it means good news. And I was just like, oh, you mean what does the word mean? Okay. So now I'm in shell shock. Like, Got it. <laughs> Got it. Well, yeah, I mean, there's so much that we could say, right? I, I, I mean, the, the epistles are essentially a commentary on the gospels that explain what the gospel is. I would have said something like, it is the good news that there is salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. Okay. And again, there's so much more we could say. Right? It's, it's by grace. It's through his atoning sacrifice. There's tons of other things we could say. But this is fascinating. What is Jesus preaching? He's preaching the good news that is literally him in the flesh. Um, I, I just think that that's, that's cool. He's preaching the word to them. Um, and he probably would have been doing it. Not, he not probably would have been doing it. He would have been doing it. Something like what we see in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, sort of expounding Old Testament ideas and showing their fulfillment in him. The ultimate intention there. Any other thoughts on that? Maybe another way we could say this is, the gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God is open to anybody. It doesn't come through perfect adherence to the Mosaic law, but it comes through faith in Christ. Again, that's good news. Okay, I think verse 5 is kind of weird. Does anything about verse 5 strike you as weird? Will you read your version again? Just so I can see how it sounds in other people's versions. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Maybe there's more than one thing that looks weird in this verse, but is, <laughs> does anything stand out to you guys? Even in the first phrase. Jesus the Seeing faith. Ooh, that's good. I actually didn't notice that one. I would love for you to unpack that more in a second. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, your, sons are, your sins are forgiven. That's strange, isn't it? I mean, we, I, I, at least I would expect that, when, that the text would say, and when Jesus saw his faith, he said to the man. So is this opening up some kind of... Um, concept that the faith of another person can save you? Yes. You think so? I think so. Um, cause for example, um, a lot of people like ask for prayer and if the people that gather together are really faithful with it, Jesus will answer. It does say that the prayer, James talks about the prayer of a righteous man mm -hmm. is powerful and effective. Well, you got the, you got the person that, that has the, uh, where the servant is not there, and, and he says, you know, where Jesus is in awe of the of the uh, centurion, right? The centurion, he oh, says, he, you know, by your faith, he, he's going to be healed. You're not. Yeah. He says, you know, I don't even have. You don't even have to come, Jesus. You know, and that's, you know, that that was. You yeah. Know, so but that, I yeah. think we got clarified when you say faith. You don't mean salvation. You're saying 
healing. healing. Well, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins to the man based on their faith. Right. Their, I said fair. Their doesn't necessarily mean just the four friends. It could have included the paralytic. Right. He saw their faith and then said specifically to the one guy. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm sort of making a mountain out of a molehill, but it's fun to look closely at the text together. Okay, that's the kind of thing that as you're reading it, you can just be like, oh yeah, and, and their faith or whatever, and you just keep reading. But it's worth thinking through, right? So the verse from Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It doesn't say, and if somebody confesses on your behalf that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart, you will be saved, okay? So there is a, a, a personal nature to this. You must personally trust that Christ is Lord. But this is not all that difficult because we if we have shared beliefs among the people that we spend our time with, don't we? I mean, maybe not in totality, but I, I don't think this is a statement about how their faith saved this man. This is a man who belongs to a group of people who together decided, we think Jesus could help you. And together they sought him out, right? right. So he helped, is. They helped him, and he agreed to yes, be helped. Yes, exactly, exactly. So they, 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 this is a, this is, they're all participating in this act of faith. What, well, what were you going to say? You were, you were going a totally different direction. Well, before I do that, it's, oh. it's interesting because I see where Kim was going with. He was healed, and if that's what it means to be saved, I know it says he was forgiven of his sins, but then if being forgiven of our sins means we get up and walk. Or our, you know, other infirmity is gone. We have to like kind of be careful what that means. Like Christ was was healing him physically, and whether he had eternal life. I, I you know, it's it's just interesting if that's a. Yeah, I guess we don't know for sure for that he that was healed physically. Sure. No, that's a good point, and we're actually going to unpack that more. Like, what does this scene kind of mean? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you're right. We don't know for sure that he entered the kingdom of God at that moment. I think I'm just trying to avoid this this idea. There, there actually is a movement. It, it connects kind of loosely with the new perspective on Paul, which is uh, a sort of liberal movement. It, it really comes out of the theology of N.T. Wright that, um, that salvation is a corporate issue, not necessarily personal. And that our American Western obsession with individualism has corrupted our reading of the text. So I didn't intend to actually go that to that level of it because I'm guessing nobody here is really interested in N.T. Wright or anything like that. So, but that's what I'm trying to avoid. I'm not necessarily making a statement about ultimately his salvation. I'm just saying I don't think that this is a proof text that you could go to to say, look, somebody else's faith can make you right with God. I was just going to say, we know that, that saving faith is the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God, and we're called to pray for those, pray for the salvation of others. So, I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, that's to, to one extent. I mean, we, we, we want to pray for those. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Seeing faith, I think that's uh, important because many people say they have faith, but their actions don't show it. And that's what James is, is speaking to, showing me the faith by your works. Yeah. This is how you know you love me, if you obey my commands. Yeah, that's good. So f just for the sake of those listening, maybe who, who I'm not sure whether they can hear that far away, um, that uh, faith is seen through action, right? Um, did we talk about this last week, the bridge? Maybe it was just in my family church. I don't remember. 
But the bridge that I had to cross in Pakistan, did I, br did I bring oh, that yeah, up? Yeah. I did bring that up? Okay. Um, you can stand on this side of a rope bridge that c goes across a raging river and say that you believe it will hold you. But your faith is enacted the moment that you actually step on the rope bridge, right? Um, and the truth is, you don't have faith until you test that rope bridge. You have doubt <laughs> until you test the rope bridge. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, I think it is important to notice here that Jesus does not first address the man's physical ailment. He addresses the man's spiritual ailment. Jesus goes to the greatest need that this man has. Um, we talked about this in detail last week as we've been going through Mark and Jesus has been doing healing that um, Jesus actually did not come to take away all physical infirmities. There are lots of people in Israel that didn't end up healed by Jesus. And so sort of the obsession on healing is, I think, kind of a distraction. It, it It's okay to desire God to bring physical healing to your body. It's okay to ask for that even. But that is not predominantly why Jesus came. Um, and so I think it's kind of interesting that Jesus goes right to your sins are forgiven. So that's what Christ came first and foremost to do, to set us free from the curse and ailment of sin. Okay, so, but this is also interesting, right? Do you see your sickness correlated with sin? It, it can be, but like, we don't, if somebody's got the flu, we don't, we're not like, well, I'll pray that God forgives you of your sins. <laughs> Why is that? Why does Jesus do it like this? Because I think our, our physical suffering, there is somehow like related to the sin that, you know, that the human nature is, is being cursed from the beginning. Yes, that is true. And that's a good point that all human sickness is in some way, shape or form traceable back to sin, man's rebellion against God. I think uh, another reason might be, you know, they want the physical healing, but the biggest need that the man has is the forgiveness of sin. That's that's really what the guy needed. You know, yeah. Life short, you know. <laughs> yeah, it is. Because remember the, the the Jews when when the paralytic, a person lying in the, in, they kind of like think, what this man do? I mean, what sin? He, he did that he is like that they're kind of like relating the sickness of people back to that you know what did you do as a sin I mean being sinner yes so you're you're stealing my material that's where we're <laughs> headed I love it 
Real, real quick, let me mention a couple other things and then we'll turn there. Um, there is some loose or some maybe light Old Testament connection between sickness and sin. Um, you know, you have David writing things like, when I, um, when I refuse to confess my sins, my bones wasted away. I didn't write that one down, but you've got another one kind of like it. Psalm 41, verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And whether or not you can even make like a real hard case for that in the Old Testament, there was this, there, there always has been, in the mind of man, this correlation between sort of a bad life because of your wrongdoings and a good life because of your good deeds, right? You see that in like Hinduism in something like karma. Um, you see it in the prosperity preachers who say, if you have enough faith, then you will basically get what you ask for. Um, in, in sort of the ancient mind, it looked like if you were rich and you were healthy, that was a sign that God was favoring you. And, you know, we even see it in Job. Right, Job's friends come and say, you must be suffering this because you've done something to anger God. Um, but I think Jesus blows this up in another scene, right? And that's kind of what you were referring to, Nanita. So if we turn with me to John chapter 9. Certainly some sins, though, some sicknesses are from sin. Like if you have AIDS because you're practicing homosexuality or hepatitis because you're sharing needles, you're, you brought that sickness yeah, the thing that's tough about that, so I do agree with that. Like, there are behaviors you can do that are displeasing to God that will lead to bad outcomes. Right. But you can also have a, a dude who's practicing homosexuality who never gets AIDS, right. Right? right? I'm trying to avoid maybe the two sides that say, like, there's always a perfect causation here between sin and sickness. But it isn't always John 10 or wherever we're going with the blind man either. Where <coughs> right. Sin is just totally. Because of God. I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, and this is why it's important for us to understand that like in the healing ministry of Jesus, the, the, the central thing is Jesus came to cure man's greatest sickness, which is sin, right? That's the point. Um, and from that will spring other things. Um, but... We live in a weird, a world of just strange kind of causation. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. So John, yeah, John nine. Um, verses. We'll just read a little bit of this. We won't read the whole story. Starting in verse one, it says, "As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind?" Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, Jesus is sort of just turning the question on its head, right? Like, what is the ultimate causation for this? Well, it's so that God will be glorified. Yeah. Um, and, and that, is, that is deeply relieving because then if you're suffering something and you pray and you don't get the answer, what's the reason? 
So God will be glorified. And if you pray and you do get what you ask for, why did you get it? So God will be glorified. That's what right? I, I, was, I was just reading uh, ahead with Joseph, right? And when the brothers come and he says, the reason that this happened, all this happens is so that, you know, the, 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 I, was, I was able to do this to protect the family for the famine, you know? I was put in this position for this reason, you know? Yeah. It was just, it's just funny how that, you know, yeah. just reading that this morning. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is crazy. It is crazy. I'm doing some premarital counseling for a couple via video. None of you know them, but they're, they're in the process of buying a house as they get married. And, um, and they want to do some renovations on the house. And it's really important to the woman. And she's like, because I have kind of some OCD and if I can get it done beforehand and, and she's, she's grounded. So I'm not representing her words very well here. So don't, don't pay too much attention to that. The point is, she said, I would love to get this done beforehand so that these behaviors that I struggle with don't manifest while we're living together in this new home. And I'm like, well, maybe God doesn't want you to get it done now so that they manifest so that he can continue to prune them from you, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So that he's glorified. Um, could be one, could be the other, but either way, he's gonna do what he does so that he's glorified, right? Um, all right, and then, uh, going back to our chapter 2 in Mark, in this instance, how is Jesus glorified? They were all astounded and gave glory to God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're blown away by his power to heal, but also Jesus connects this healing to this particular issue. He is glorified because he says to them, and we've been talking about this through Mark, he's shown his authority to call men to himself. He's shown his authority over evil spirits. He's showing his authority as the son of God. Why should you follow this man? Because he is authoritative. He's the son of God. And now he's showing his authority to forgive man for his sins. And so in this instance, God is glorified because Jesus has the opportunity to say, I am the one who can forgive you of sins. That's powerful. I had to spend a lot of time working through some of this, though, because um, I, I find this scene a little bit uh, tricky. Jesus asks this question in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Which is easier? Sin are forgiven. The first one? Why? Less syllables. <laughs> like, is that what he has in mind? <laughs> I... I I, I think it's a good guess, but I don't think that that's ultimately like, I, I don't think he's saying it's, which is shorter. It's just stated and there's not necessarily going to be any proof of it. Yeah, I think that's it, right? Like The next thing is like, it's an action. So normally the, the human nature, it's not easy to get action. Say that again. What do you mean by that? Because the first thing is it, is it easier the sins forgiven? Yeah, it is easy for Jesus to forgive. But I don't know if it's get up and pick up your 
it's kind of like it's it's, it's an action thing. Like, Jesus still giving us the choice to you know follow or not follow. Okay. I mean, obey or not obey. Okay. Say that again. You can do the. I don't think you can do the second part without believing the first part. The second part meaning the heal or uh, rise up, take your bed, walk without believing in that the your sins part. can be forgiven. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think of that. That makes sense. I, I think probably the simplest sort of like explanation here, and all of these things I think are connected to this, but is that uh, it's it's it would be easy for Jesus to say, "I forgive you of your sins." Right. Um, well, how how would we go about verifying whether that's true or not? Um, and so it's easier to just say something like that. You know, it might be. I'm trying to think of an illustration off the top of my head. It it might be um, similar to me saying something like, you know, I can do a magic trick where I saw somebody in half. Oh, exactly. <laughs> You're like. <laughs> Okay, prove it. <laughs> like, if I just claim it, that's one thing. It's another thing to actually do it. Yeah. In the cross, when Jesus is hanged, and one of the thieves says, remember me when you're in the paradise. And Jesus instantly said, yes, um, right now. Yeah, today you will be with you me. Will be in the, in right. Paradise. Right. The, the man doesn't get up at the first thing. He doesn't walk. Right. Isn't that interesting? For me, it is. I, I think it is. Um, and so I think these two things really do go together because I think that as soon as Jesus says your sins are forgiven, it's true. Like Jesus does is not holding these things against this man. Um, and yet the whole scene is necessary because Jesus is showing through the healing that he does have the power to do what they could not verify in the first statement. Does that make sense? Okay. Um. And I think like to Josh's point, that's the, the thing that's most ma- matters most is his sins are forgiving, king of walks of bonus. And then to what Ron said, it's like it's clarification. Verifiable, yeah. But here's an, another interesting thing about this is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. It's harder to do. It's actually harder to say get up and walk, but actually it's easier to do. And and what I mean by that is physicians make people walk. Here's some crutches. We can do a surgery, right? Like there are things that man can do to help a crippled person walk. There's nothing that man can do to alleviate the consequence of sin before God. You know, I've known people that are unbelievers that don't that have a real hard time with forgiveness. I mean, they, they hold grudges like their entire life that they just will not forgive people. Some I've known people that are like that. They just I know professing forgive. Christians that are like that. But I'm saying that like sometimes forgiving people for unbelievers is just they just can't do it. Like it's so hard for them to forgive. You know, so that's sometimes going to be the harder thing to forgive. You know, and to yeah. say tell tell somebody yeah, you know, get up and walk. So. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, but actually Jesus is not merely saying that. He's accomplishing it. Um, and that's, that's the difference. And then he heals the man to show, I am the one who has the power to do this kind of thing. Um, and then I think he is also in this moment sort of teaching that first and foremost his ministry is not about the healing. It's about the forgiveness of sins. 
So Jesus jumps right to accomplishing what only God can do. And these people are right to respond and be like, whoa, hold on, who does this dude think he is offering forgiveness of sins? Only God can do that. And Jesus is doing this very intentionally so that the people observing these actions understand what he is claiming about himself. I had a slip when I read, God said, son, pick up your mat, walk out. Why would I say that? It's so clear, so Jesus. But then I don't know that any other place where Jesus calls him his son can be there longer. That's what I was going to ask. Did it like mean that he's just younger than him? And, or does it mean like something more significant? Because he calls him that Matthew too. So I'll pick up your mat. Um, well, he just calls the paralytic son. And normally, you know, Jesus he's kind of used brother. I might be making much of nothing. That's interesting. I, I think it's just that. a loving but he might say brother, oh, yeah, you know, is. because he's a he's a son. He's son, a flesh. He's a I'm used to him saying brother. Yeah. Well, even even that's really interesting because there are very very, in fact, I think there's only like two instances in the Old Testament where the relationship between God and man is called father. Um, other than the idea of like Israel is my son. Um, the personal application of that relationship is very sparse. Well, I'm just trying to correlate it, saying Jesus is showing himself to be God here, and by by, by saying, "Son, your sons are your sins are forgiven." Yeah, this double like yeah there, you know, like only God can forgive sins, and God is the author of all men. And, Amen. Yeah. And I, I'm actually only trying to like add another layer to that, which is to say. Jesus is opening up this intimacy between man and God, right? In the forgiveness of sins, man has restored intimacy with God. So I didn't notice the whole son thing, but that's beautiful. I think that's another beautiful detail in the text here. Um, okay, so in a sense, the miracle is Jesus removing any excuse for unbelief. I said your sins are forgiven. You probably don't believe me, but now I'm going to heal this man. And now, what excuse do you have that you don't believe that I am the Messiah who came in the name of God for the forgiveness of sins? Um, and of course, the crowd offers the proper response, which Rick mentioned early on. It's amazement. It is to glorify God. And... We don't see healings like this regularly. But we see the forgiveness of sins regularly. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we be in constant awe and amazement that God is at work in this same way in the world today? Um, you know, we've got a new guy coming to our church, Ryan, and... Uh, He's a relatively new believer, but God just got a hold of his heart. His story's pretty rad. He like I think he said I think he told me he was like in the bath. And that was like the moment where he realized like he had faith in Jesus and he was in the kingdom of God. And he's grown like a weed. I keep sort of referencing Bible verses and kind of like expecting him to be like, Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that one before. But he's he knows it. Um and uh that is a miraculous work of God to bring healing and the forgiveness of sins in the heart of man. And 
Praise God for that. We should be in amazement and we should give God glory for that. It's happening all around us all the time. So tragically, familiarity to these stories breeds um, apathy, doesn't it? That we can read a story like this and be like, oh yeah, this is the parable of the, the paralytic who comes through the roof. Like, I know this one. Oops, sorry. Um, we should be amazed at this stuff, I think, every time we read it. So, unfortunately, you, you just can't recapture the wonder of Scripture the first time you read it. Unfortunately. You know, we have this, uh, what's it called? It's like the Action Bible for kids or something like that. And it's like a cartoon, it's like a comic book one. And it's pretty rad. And there was literally a time where my children like devoured that thing. I mean, they were up in their rooms just like reading page after page after page. And because it was new and it was exciting and they'd never heard these things before. And now they can talk about, oh yeah, you know, uh, um, why can't I think of his name? Samson, you know, killed a lion with a, or jawbone. yeah, with a jawbone, right? Or a thousand men with a jawbone. Or I don't know. He kills a lion and he kills a thousand lions. The point is, the point is, they can read that story and be like, "Oh yeah, I know that one." Right? Um, you can't recapture the wonder of that first exposure, unfortunately. But I think I think it we would be served well to fight to keep a sense of awe and wonder at the power of God and the work of Jesus Christ and what the Scriptures record for us in His life and in what He accomplished. Um, May we never get to the point where we're like, yeah, I know that story. No, but there's a, to be encouraged in that, which I, I agree that we lose that, but also what comes with that is wisdom and walking. It's like the apprentice, you know, it's wonder how the carpenter's doing these joints and stuff, and they're old half of this guy, but he, you know, you grow in ways that are beyond that, that the, the new guy that's on fire doesn't have because you've seen these things in actions, you know how they just more yeah. wisdom. Like yes, that. yes, yes. And that is true. And praise God that there's sort of that kind of give and take there. That that like with with practice you get tempered in these things and they come more naturally, right? Um, a lot of times uh, the 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 relatively new believer is still struggling with ongoing sin issues that they haven't tackled yet, right? Whereas the the more tempered believer has has learned to exercise self-control, one of the fruit of the Spirit in that. Praise God for that. I think, I just would hope for like both and. That we can maintain the sense of wonder even if we've been walking with Jesus 40 years and, and we've heard it all a million times. Um, I don't think it'd be the same though. Like in a marriage, when you first meet your your spouse, you're obsessed with them. You know, like you're almost like on drugs. You're so like thinking about them. It's true. And that's kind of how it is when you first know Christ, but then like through marriage you become comfortable and close and familiar. And you could like let the relationship weaken, but if you're like consistent and just developing it and always staying close and communicating, then it just stays beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it's never like it was initially. That's true. And actually it's funny you say that. That's one of the reasons why I like doing marriage counseling or premarital counseling, because I get to see these couples in that stage and it reminds me of that. And it, you kind of like get your fix through like vicariously in that way. Um, but uh, you're right. It's, a, it's the nature of the human experience that things are changing. But, but we can also be chasing something that is unattainable yeah, is a danger too. Yeah, like, totally. Oh, people can still have that honeymoon phase. And it's, well, no, not really. Like, so don't try to live in the past. Foster the 
I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I, I do think it's wrong to chase the buzz that you got from those early days of knowing Jesus. And then you but, ended up wrestling with your wife, like, wrestling with God. <laughs> I would win that fight for sure. Um, no, no, you're the man. You don't ever win it. Oh, oh you, don't, you don't mean literally physically. You mean, you mean the yeah. emotional wrestling. Um, but don't you think in heaven, like, my dad has this sort of funny sermon where... <laughs> Where he, he talks about how a friend of his, he and a friend of his were talking about like, what do you think the first words out of your mouth in heaven will be? And his friend was like, oh, for sure. It'll be, oh, oh, like now it makes sense, right? And my dad is like, I, don't, I think you're crazy, dude. I think it'll just be, wow. He's like, I think I'll spend the first, you know, weeks of heaven just walking around being like, wow, wow, right? So I don't know that in eternity we will ever lose the sense of wonder. I, I think every day we we will literally think about the verses. Mercies are new every morning. We'll be like, wow, that's incredible. Wait, he's here? Yeah. <laughs> like the sun rises there and wow every Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I totally understand and respect what you're saying. Let's be cautious about what it is that we are seeking after. We want to seek after Christ himself. Um, but... But we definitely do want to pursue like a close relationship because it makes me think of Revelation when he rebukes that church because he says, you've left your first love. Yeah. Even though they were doing everything they were supposed to be doing, their heart was not for yeah. him. Yep, yep. Man, we could just say here that Satan is such a little jerk because he, he gets you kind of no matter what, right? Like, he'll get you with the apathy and then he'll get you with the buzz. Like, no matter what, he's, he's constantly seeking to take that thing and manipulate it so your motivation becomes wrong. Pump. But God is steadfast. He is. He is. And we can come back to this and say our sins are forgiven, not because our motives are pure or because we're deserving of it or because we're good, but because God is merciful. Right? Um, well, let's go a little bit further. Uh Somebody want to read 13 through 17 for us? Sure. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a lot for us to talk about in these verses, so we, we definitely won't finish this chunk today, unfortunately. But um, maybe we can lay the groundwork and knock out a couple of things. So Levi, Levi's a tax collector, also known as Matthew. Um, why do you think Mark records the name of Levi's father? Is Alpheus a significant character anywhere else in the biblical narrative? Yeah, so why why put this name in there? Jewish. 
I think it's probably because at the time this was written, Alpheus may have still been alive, right? And so it's like, hey, you, if you want more information, you can, you can go find Levi, who is the son of Alpheus, and talk with him. You can talk with Alpheus about how these events went down, right? So I, I think that it's probably in there so that you can... You, so, that, so that if this manuscript was circulating and you got your hands on it and you were like, I can't believe this, you could go talk to the people who were present in the story. Yeah, and that's another piece of it. It may just be as simple as that, as like you didn't have uh, like a surname like we have now, so that's how you were identified. Um, okay, Luke is going to, in the next chapter, record the names of all 12 of the apostles for us. And I, I, I'll save the... Um, I won't, I won't use up my ammunition for that passage quite yet. The way he words it, I think, is very interesting. Um, but I'll just read them off for you. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. Remember, this is not James who wrote the book of James. Actually, did you know that James, the, like, isn't it weird that all these people have names that mostly come from the Old Testament and then all of a sudden you get James? James is actually Jacob. I don't know if you knew that, but that, that happened because of the transliteration um, so actually, when you read the book of James, you're reading the book of Jacob, the brother of Jesus. So different James. Um, it says, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Then you have Andrew, you have Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, who is Levi, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, so another James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. I'm actually always encouraged by this list. And um, the reason is because pastorally, and, and I, I like the way The Chosen kind of draws some of this out. I think it's kind of helpful. Because I don't think we probably think much about the fact that Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot could be at the same table together, right? I mean, these dudes probably, Simon the Zealot probably wanted to kill Matthew the Levi, or <laughs> Matthew the tax collector, Levi the tax collector. Um, and probably most of the other disciples were in fact like this guy, Jesus, like he's a Jewish sellout. He's got no business being part of this. And I, and I think that's kind of beautiful because I have moments in pastoral ministry where I'm like, how are these different people going to get along? Mm -hmm. And yet God is a great unifier, right? He makes different people get along. Um, and he even makes people with different passions be united in the one passion that they share in Christ. This is a pretty impressive group of people to keep together for three years. So I just have written down, Jesus manages to keep people with diverse views, backgrounds, perspectives, passions, and interests together because they're all committed to following him. That's beautiful. Now, we could ask the question, how far does that go? There is a limit to it. Notice Jesus does not have any pagan priests or Roman soldiers or Pharisees or practicing homosexuals following him. Right? So we can say Jesus kept a diverse group of people together who maybe 
would have been at each other's throats from time to time, but there was a limit to that. It was not just an all-inclusive free-for-all. So people often make much about how inclusive Jesus was, but they do it at the expense of how exclusive Jesus was. And we can't make that mistake, okay? Now, I'm saying that even though this is a scene where Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors. (laughs) But the problem with that statement is so obvious, isn't it? Who are the people saying Jesus is eating with sinners? Sinners, Sinners, right? Like, (laughs) there is no category of person with which Jesus could eat where he would not have been eating with sinners. Now, I understand culturally what's going on here. These are people that are particularly seen as, um, uh, yeah, lawbreakers, rebels against the the Jewish way. Um, But the Pharisees saw saw themselves as categorically different. And we know the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus tells, the the parable. Um, Literally, in that parable, the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Right? He sees himself as belonging to a totally different category of person. One that is righteous in the eyes of God because of his own, um, yeah, lifestyle, his own good works. And unfortunately, I think Jesus tells that parable to remind us that we all do this in different ways. You have probably done this in the recent past. Driving on 347. God, I thank you that I'm not like other drivers, that I don't cut people off. I thank you that I'm better than them. Right? Um, you know, you hear about, I don't know, inflation and credit card debt. And you're like, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, that I don't use credit cards to pay my normal bills. Like, that I don't, I'm not dependent on my credit cards for my food. Um, There's a million ways we do this, right? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men because I show up to work on time and my lazy coworker here is always 10 minutes late and robs his employer. so I think that that should be a convicting parable for us. I've told you the story probably before that when I was when we were teaching through Luke and we got to that section of Luke, I read the parable and I'm like, God, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. And I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> That's literally what the Pharisee says. I am just like the Pharisee. So, but the Pharisees failed to miss the central truth here. If Jesus were to eat with them, he'd be eating with sinners. Okay, so verse 15, uh, we got to wrap it up. We'll have to stop there. I'm sorry. Good question about tax collectors. Do you know if they were always their own people that the Romans put in charge of collecting taxes? Or was that an extra step that you would have? That's a good question. I, I assume that they were um, for a couple of reasons because they, they would have known the culture and the community and. Um, they would have been a little bit more trusted. They would have been a little bit better at negotiating with the people. And the Jews in particular were rough for the Romans. Like the Romans were pretty good at subduing peoples, but the Jews were constantly in rebellion. But I guess I don't know if 100%. It's a good question. Let me pray for us.
God, I pray that we would be humble before you. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And I pray that we would remember that we are sinners and we were found by you in grace and that we weren't deserving of that. And I, I pray again that it would humble us, that we would pursue righteousness, but we would connect it with humility, that we would even understand that as we walk in righteousness, um, that's not what makes us acceptable in your eyes. Um, and so, Lord, help us to keep those two things together. And we, yeah, we just thank you for Christ, who is God and has authority to do these things. Um, and I pray that we would be in awe and wonder of that, particularly in awe and wonder of the grace that we have received through him. In Christ's name, amen. amen.